You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So today, Ephesians 5, uh, we are starting a new set of sermons today called The Bride. Called The Bride. It's on the Church of Jesus. And uh, here's where I want to start. I want to start by playing a word association game with you. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question or, or at least say the word, and you have to think about what comes after that word. What, what thoughts kind of well up in you and want to come out of you when you hear the word? So when I say the word church, what filled the silence right there in your heart? Just think about what, what comes up and out of you when you hear that word, the church. What is the association that, that comes from that? Now, if you have your fingers on the pulse of culture, you know that that word church has fallen on hard times. Uh, that's just kind of the cultural view of it. Sociologists tell us that we live in a culture uh, that has a lot of believers, but not very many belongers. That's a, a way that they're just trying to say, essentially what I'm saying here, is that we live in a culture where people generally kind of have a vague appreciation for Jesus, but they just don't see a whole lot of need for the church. That, that would be a pretty good description of how culture by and large sees the church. And you can see that in the title of several books that have come out over the last five to ten years. Titles like this, Life After Church, Divine Nobodies, Quitting Church, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. Or one that just says it straightforward, I like Jesus, but not the church. Those are just to name a few of the books that have come out that just kind of help you get a, pull, or, you know, a sense of like, what, what is the pulse of how our culture views the church? Even, even people who appreciate and even like and even love Jesus, how, how do they see the church? Um, it, it is not an uncommon feeling for people to have this sense of, I like Jesus, but I just don't like the church very, very much. I mean, in our culture, there's just a de-emphasized, dismissed view of the church. And here's the thing. We, we all need to feel a warning in that and to be careful with that. Because if there's one thing a culture does, it's disciple. A culture is all about discipling people who are in that culture. And so we need to make sure when we think about the church that our view of the church is, is not cultural, but it's actually Christian. But we need to be mindful of that and thinking about that. And there's no doubt when you think about our culture and what is it it's discipling us to believe that the cultural view, even those who appreciate Jesus, that the culture has lost its sense of what the church is and it needs to regain God's view of the church. Now that's why we're going to spend the next couple of months thinking about the church of Jesus Christ together, why we're going to think about the bride. Because contrary to kind of the cultural take it or leave it view of the church, the Bible puts the church right at the center of God's plans and purposes in the world. That's where the church is according to the Bible, right? Tim Challies, uh, listen to how he says this. He's an author and pastor. He says it this way. It'll be on the screen for you. The local church is central to God's plan for the world. In fact, in many ways, the local church is God's plan for the world. Much of what God means to teach the world, he teaches through the local church. Much of what he means to display to the world, he displays through the local church. Much of what he means to accomplish in the world, he accomplishes through the local church. No ministry can outshine it. No program replace it. No power can topple it. The local church is God's plan and he has no backup. Now, if you've been around the church for very long, that last phrase is kind of scary, isn't it? No backup? Oh, no. 
As messy as the church is, there's no backup to that. Yeah, there's, like this is God's plan and there's no backup. That, that is the place that the church sits in the Bible. When you read from Genesis to Revelation, here's what you find. You find that the plan of God has always been to purchase not a person, but a people for God's own possession. That God would look down upon and say, these are my people. I have redeemed them. I have set them apart. I have rescued them. And, and that those redeemed people would then gather into local visible expressions called the church. And, and that those local and you know, visible expressions called the church would be outposts of heaven, showcasing and displaying what life with God can be like. I love how Eugene Peterson describes the church. He says, the church is a colony of resurrection in a world of death. Now, I love that. That's what the church is meant to be. That's a great description of the church. The church is a colony of resurrection in a world of death. God's people organizing these, themselves into these colonies of resurrection, these outposts of heaven, these, these local churches exist for the glory of God and to showcase God in a way that nothing else on this planet can. If you could just imagine jumping into like a time transporter and you're like a million years into the future and you are now looking back over the history of this world and you're looking at all of these empires rising and falling. You look at the Greek empire rising and falling, the Roman empire rising and falling, even our very own. Here is what in a million years from now you are going to see stand taller than them all, the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to one author talk about this. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group or organization or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena fades into formless gray against the splendor of the bride of Christ. So take heed how you judge. Let's just hear that. Take heed how we judge. Things are not what they seem. The gates of hell, the power of death will prevail against every other institution but one, the church. So lift up your eyes, O oh Christian. You belong to a society that will never cease, to the apple of God's eye, to the eternal and cosmic church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that church that I just want to spend a few months thinking about with you. Thinking through and thinking about what is the Bible? How does God see the church? That, that's where we're headed. Now, I, I want to just put my cards on the table. Here is the, the clear thing I'm hoping that, that God will do for you and I. I am hoping that over the next few months, that God would pump into our hearts a burning love for the local church. I'm praying that would happen for you, for me, for us as a church, that God would pump into our hearts a burning love for the church, that, that we would be a people willing to give our life away to see the church flourish, 
that God would give us fresh ambitions for how we can serve the church and grow the church and, and, and be a servant here in the church, that, that God would do those sorts of things for us. Charles Spurgeon, um, in the middle of preaching a sermon on the church one time, he, he called the church the dearest place on earth. And I'm just praying that God might give us a deepened sense of the church is the dearest place on earth. That, that we would believe that, feel that, think that when we see and think about the local church. So with that said, I want to start in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And I really just want to ask two questions of this passage today. Two questions. What is the church and how does God feel about the church? What is the church and how does God feel about the church? Two questions, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So let's start with question number one. What is the church? What, what is the church? In, in the 12 verses that make up the passage that you just heard read, the word church is used six times. So it's obviously a really big idea in this passage if it's used six times. So it would lead us to ask the question, what, what does that word mean? What is the church? When the Bible is talking about the church, what is it talking about? What does the word mean? Now, this is where, you know, 50, roughly a decade and a half in pastoral ministry, I've grown to see that most people have a very vague idea of what that word means. So let's just not assume that we know. Let's make sure we press for clarity to make sure that we know what is a church? What does that word mean? Now, in church history, there's been a lot of ways that people have talked about the church to try to bring clarity to that. I think one of the most helpful is distinguishing between the invisible church and the visible church. So let me just make that distinction. What is the invisible church? The invisible church, you might could think of that as the universal church, the, the universal church. It's the church as God perfectly sees it. That the invisible church would be um, those who have been rescued and saved and, and who love Jesus for all time in all places. That, that's the invisible church. Everyone who loves and has been rescued by Jesus is a part of the invisible church. That would include believers in the Old Testament. It would include people in every culture, ethnicity, every time period whose sins are forgiven through Jesus. That's the invisible church. Now, the other word is the, in, the visible church. That's the invisible the church as God perfectly sees it. Now we've got the visible church. It's the church as we imperfectly see it. It's the church in all of these little outposts of heaven, right? All of these colonies of resurrection. When the, when the invisible church begins to gather in local expressions, that's the visible church, these local bodies. So just think about Ephesians as a for instance. In Ephesians 5, most of the time when the word church is used, it's talking about the invisible, sort of universal church. But at the same time, Paul is writing to an individual church, a local church in Ephesus. Okay, so you've got both the invisible and the visible being represented there. Now, um, we just need to, to make sure we press all the way into, when we're talking about the visible church, a local church, like the church in Ephesus, what would be the bare minimum that make up a local church? So for a local church to be a local church, what does the local church need to have and, and, and be? The, here's the best definition I can, I've ever found for it. Um, and this is essentially coming out of the book of Acts. Let me just read through this definition, make a few comments about it. This should be up on the screen for you. What is a local church? The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership. They gather on a regular basis for preaching and worship. 
They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion. They are unified by the Spirit and their discipline for holiness and scattered to fulfill both the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. Now, in that definition, I'm just going to leave that on the screen for you. I want to point out eight marks of a local church. Like, this is thinking of it in a minimalistic sense. If you had to boil it down to these basic things, what would be the basic things that make a church a church? First, you have regenerated believers. In other words, you have to have people who have been rescued and legitimately saved by Jesus to have a church. That's where a church starts. You have to have people rescued by Jesus, mark number one. Mark number two, you see in that definition, qualified leadership. This is where so much of our 21st century thinking gets really blurry. Um, the, the qualified leadership is what, is what makes three guys who meet at Starbucks not a local church, right? That a local church has to have qualified leaders. In other words, under shepherds or pastors who are taking their cues from Jesus, who meet certain qualifications, who God has entrusted a group of people to. And they will one day be held accountable for that group of people. And on the other hand, there's got to be a group of people who are looking at those pastors and under shepherds and saying, I will gladly submit to your leadership. That sort of qualified leadership is one of the marks that make a church a church. Number three, a local church gathers for preaching and worship. They meet together and celebrate the good news of Jesus in both sermon and song. A fourth mark of a local church. Um, when they gather, they observe the sacraments of baptism and communion. It's a regular practice in the church. Number five, they are unified in the spirit. Number six, they are disciplined for holiness. So when we decide to hold on to our sin and we refuse to repent, when we refuse the correction from the spirit, then the correction from our community and even correction from our pastors, there's a moment where God in a painful act of love comes into a person and removes them from a church. It's the painful, just painful love of church discipline. But that's one of the marks of the church, discipline for holiness. Mark number seven, a church scatters after it gathers and it scatters to fulfill the great commandment, to love our neighbor as God has loved us. And that same church, Mark number eight, scatters to fulfill the great commission to make disciples of all nations. Okay, these are the marks that make up a local church. If you have less than that, then you have less than a New Testament local church. This is what the church is. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time on question number two. How does Jesus feel about the church? So if that's what the church is, question number two is, how does Jesus feel about the church? Now, when you're reading through the Bible, um, you find all sorts of metaphors for the church. So you have the body, you have the church's family, you, you know, all, the church is a vine. You have all of these different metaphors for the church. One guy did a lot of research on this and says there's over 90 metaphors in the Bible for the church. I don't know if there's that many, but there's a lot of metaphors in the Bible concerning the church. Now, all of those metaphors should be taken together to, to get a sense of what the church is, how the church operates, how Jesus feels about the church. So if you emphasize one at the expense of the others, you probably are going to have a deformed view of the church. Each of those metaphors has a way of adding a stroke of color to our view of the church to make sure we are seeing it in its richness and depth. So all of those metaphors are important. But this morning, I want to just take the metaphor that we find in Ephesians 5 and to lift it up and to ask, what are some of the implications of it. And, and the metaphor that you have in Ephesians 5 is the church as the bride of Christ. It's the imagery of the bride. 
Now, when we read a passage like Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, I don't think we naturally think, what does that passage have to say about God and the church, how God kind of interacts with, how God feels about the church? That's not what we naturally think. We naturally think um, there's roles for men, there's roles for women in marriage. How do we function in marriage? We have a way of, of, of naturally going to like thinking that the point of the passage is about marriage. And it does have much to say about marriage. But marriage in this passage is the surface level presenting issue. What's down at the bottom of this passage is how Jesus relates to the church. So up here is marriage and down here is God and his church. So that leads us to ask the question then, what does the metaphor of the church as the bride show us about God and the church? What is this passage teaching us about how God views the church? how God feels about the church. Now think of the context here. Look at verse 25. In this passage, Paul is telling husbands to do something. He tells wives to do something and husbands to do something. In verse 25, you see what he tells husbands to do. In verse 25, he looks at the husbands and says, husbands, do what? Love your wives. So he has got something to say about marriage here. But what is the love of the husband for the wife to be modeled upon? Verse 25 shows us. Husbands, love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church. So that gives us our answer. What does the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ show us about the relationship between God and the church? Here's the answer. This metaphor shows us that Jesus loves his church. Jesus really does love the church. That's what this metaphor is bringing out and lifting out for us to see, that Jesus loves his church. And let me take that a step further. When you look at verse 32, here is what verse 32 shows us. Verse 32 shows us the reason that men and women fall in love. It shows us the reason that there's such a thing as romantic comedies. It shows us why there is such a thing as love songs. It shows us why men and women would hurl themselves into the mega commitment that we call marriage. It show, verse 32 shows us the reason for all of those things. God created all of those things as signposts. And, and each of those things, marriage, romantic comedies, love songs, all of those things are pointing beyond themselves. All of those things are meant to point us beyond the couple's love for one another. All of those things are meant to show us the unbreakable, never-stopping, tender, sacrificial, gentle love of Jesus for his bride, the church. Everything God says about marriage in this passage, husbands love your wives, when you see that love playing out, is, is just a faint shadow of, of God's love for his church. So now that, that lets us ask the next question. So if that's what the bride imagery is showing us, that Jesus really does love his church, then the question becomes, well, how does, how does Jesus love the church? What, what does that love in action look like? And let me just point out three things from this passage that Jesus' love for the church looks like. Three things that we see here. What, what does his love look like? First of all, it looks like this. Jesus' love for the church, or loves the church, by giving himself for it. So it's this deeply sacrificial love. He loves the church by giving himself for it. Now, one way to judge the value of something is to see what people are willing to give to purchase it or to secure it. Now, the problem with humans is we're crazy, Right? So it, it oftentimes doesn't work with us because we oftentimes under or overvalue things. 
We, we place way too much value on certain things and way too little value on other things, but not so with God. God is all wise, right? He's all knowing. When God values something, that is a, a perfect statement of the value of that thing. So he is a dependable source to look at. When he says something is valuable, we, we, we know it's valuable. So we can ask the question now, what, what did God give to purchase the bride? What, what did God give to purchase the church? Ephesians 5.25 shows us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He loved the church by giving himself up for her. He gave himself for the church. Now, let's think about the Bible's storyline for a moment. Think about how the, the story of the Bible goes. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a perfect garden, and he places our first parents in the garden. And that goes well for all of about three chapters, right? And in chapter 3, our first parents rebel against God. God's beloved people, in a sense, declared war on God. They put him in the category of enemy. And if you want to read forward from there in the Old Testament, you find that repeated pattern. That the people of God looking at God saying, but God, you're my enemy. You're no longer my God, you're my enemy. Or if you want maybe even a more graphic illustration of this in the Old Testament, or a more graphic imagery, God's people throughout the Old Testament prostituted themselves with a thousand other little g-gods. This is what is continually happening throughout the Old Testament. You find it in each chapter, one chapter after another, this absolute and all-out rebellion against God from God's very own people. Now here is the beauty of the biblical story. Our sin couldn't stop the purpose of God to purify for himself a people. All of our rebellion, all of kind of the spiritual adultery and prostitution that we see in the Old Testament didn't stop God from claiming a people for himself. How did God do that? From Genesis 3 on, the Bible foretells the coming of Jesus who would one day purchase this bride for God the Father. This is what the Bible foretells all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the prophets. And then when you turn the pages of the New Testament, God the Father sent God the Son who perfectly lived in our place, died the death that we should have lived. Jesus on the cross giving up his very life, offering his very life, not to, purpose, not, not to purchase you as a singular person, but, but a people. Not you singular, but us plural to, to purchase for himself a church, a bride. Or think about this from God the Father's perspective. To, to purchase the bride, God the Father didn't just give his leftovers. He didn't just kind of rummage through his couch and grab a little bit of spare change. That's not the way God the Father did it, is it? He, he gave what was, I mean, you couldn't, it couldn't be more valuable than, than what God the Father gave. God the Father gave his beloved son crushed on a cross under the weight of our sin. God the Father gave the supreme gift, the, the, the gift that is of infinite value. It, it just makes me wonder sometimes when people say something like this, Jesus, man, I am all about you. But man, your bride, it's just kind of worthless to me. I just don't really think I need it. It just makes me wonder, how, how does God respond to that in his heart? Are, are you talking about my bride? 
that the one I gave my beloved son for, that the one I gave the, the most valuable possession, my beloved son to purchase, that that's, that's the bride that, that you don't have time for, that you don't need, that, that feels worthless to you. I just wonder how that grieves the heart of God when we say something like that. How does Jesus love the church? He loves the church in a way that he gives himself for it. What else do we see in this passage? Jesus loves the church by laboring for her beauty. By laboring for her beauty. You see this in verses 26 and 27. He gave himself for the church. Why? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I am so grateful I can say the next thing to you. I think this is a fair summary of how the Bible talks about the church. I am so grateful that Jesus didn't just marry the church, but he has also committed himself to making something beautiful of her. Man, aren't you grateful for that? That God doesn't just save for himself a people, but God is committed to be at work in those people to make something beautiful of them, to conform them more and more and more into the image of Jesus. Jesus is 100% committed to that. He is committed to the labor of washing his church with the word so that over time they progressively lose their spots progressively over time that their wrinkles are smoothed out and that one day that messy, oftentimes even ugly bride will one day be without a single blemish. Can you imagine that day? But, but that's the work that Jesus is committed to. Now, I think that takes us right just headlong into one of the primary objections against the local church, against churches. And that objection would go something like this. How in the world could I love the church when it's so full of hypocrites? Or maybe, maybe it would go like this. How in the world could I love the local church when I've been so wounded by it? Now, I want to be careful with that. Obviously, that probably comes from a place of a lot of hurt. And I can empathize with that. I mean, I have felt that. If I think about the, the span of my life, my deepest wounds have come in the context of the local church. I think it's probably fair to say that, that I've cried more tears from hurts that I've experienced in the context of the local church than I have for probably anything else in my life. So I can totally empathize with that. But I wanted to say a, a few things about that. And, and here's, here's, I think this is one helpful thing to maybe say. I think we should probably come into any church expecting it's going to be painful in moments. It's going to hurt in moments. It's not just going to be pleasant all the time. Now, why is that? The, the church is the only place I know of that the condition for membership is everybody is agreeing. We are all stacking our hands on this. Our hearts are evil and they're really dark. I mean, we, we, the church is the one place that like the, the condition to come in is by saying, we are so desperately wicked, we actually need a savior to come and help us. I mean, that's the, kind of the front door into this thing. So I think it's helpful if we all just got into our minds, this is going to be a place with sinners in it. The, the reason the church is going to hurt you sometime is the same reason that you hurt other people sometimes, is that we're all imperfect people, right? 
We're people in desperate need of grace from God. So, so this is you, this is me. When we think about our church, I think it's helpful to think of it that way. Um, I oftentimes will just say this periodically on a Sunday morning, just to, to look around at this group of people in here, just get some, some faces in, in your kind of your mental eye there. And don't they look so nice sitting across from you there? I mean, they look, they look so nice. But these are the very people who are going to stab you right in the back periodically. And do you know why that is? Because they're sinners. And do you know why you're going to do that periodically? Because you're a sinner. That the church is an imperfect bride. God is making it beautiful, but it's an, but it's an, imperfect, or an imperfect bride. I quoted this earlier from Charles Spurgeon. He, uh, when he called the church, just that little phrase, the dearest place on earth. But let me, let me give you the, the, that phrase is embedded into a larger quote and paragraph. Let me give you the larger quote um, from that. that. That quote is in this paragraph. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not found it perfect. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect after I'd become a member of it. Now listen to what he says after all of that. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. So I think we need a theology of the church that recognizes it is an imperfect bride, that the church is a work under construction. Can you imagine someone, think of the Eiffel Tower, right? A very beautiful place. People take pictures there all the time because it's such a beautiful uh, scene, right? Can you imagine someone halfway through the construction of the Eiffel Tower, someone coming uh, to the Eiffel Tower, there's scaffolding all over it, there's pieces of steel not connected, some's going that way, some's going this way, you can't see how it's all connected yet, there's no landscaping, it's no paint job on it, it just, it doesn't look good. And can you imagine them coming to the Eiffel you know, Tower halfway through construction and saying, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. What, what is wrong with people who like that thing? Can you imagine that? I mean, that would be pretty silly, wouldn't it? And in the same way, I think this is how a lot of us treat the church. She is under construction. She's not yet made perfect. She's got all this scaffolding on her, pieces of steel going that way, pieces of steel going this way. Things aren't connected yet. She oftentimes looked like she's in rags and she's tattered and she's disheveled. She's all of that. But the Bible is so clear. The church is headed somewhere. And this is where the church is headed. There's going to be a day where Jesus reveals his bride, the church, and in that moment, every jaw is going to drop. John sees the vision of that in Revelation 21, and this is how John says it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, that's the people of God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The imperfect bride of Christ is on her way to perfection. And that day is going to be a glorious day. Now, it just makes me just think, how does God just deepen his heart respond to the person who comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, I'm all about you. Man, I can totally get down with you, Jesus. But your bride is way, way too ugly for me. I just wonder how God feels about that. Are you talking about 
the, the bride that I gave my life to purchase. But not just to purchase, but to make perfect. My, my bride that, that today I am ironing out the spots. My, my bride that I gave my life to smooth out the wrinkles. Are, are you talking about my, my bride that I have given my life so that one day she will be perfectly adorned for me forever. Man, I just wonder how God feels about that. How else does Jesus love his church? Jesus loves the church by delighting in her. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Jesus doesn't just tolerate the church. Jesus nourishes it. He cherishes the church. He delights in the church. That, that word cherish is where we kind of get our idea of something being heartwarming. That, that's the idea of cherish there. That when Jesus thinks about the church, it warms his heart. He delights in it like that. As imperfect as it is, he delights like that in the church. Do you remember the last wedding you've been to? Um, my last wedding was Zach Wright's and Faith's wedding. And um, I, I love weddings for a lot of different reasons, but one of the main things I love to do in a wedding is to watch the groom's face when the doors open and the bride is about to be walked down. Isn't that a great moment? I mean, you're looking at this groom who, man, you can just tell his heart is about to beat out of his chest. His palms are sweaty. There, there is just eagerness and excitement and anticipation just welling up and bursting out of him as he sees the bride, his bride coming down the aisle. Now, what, why is there that moment in the world? That is not an accidental moment. That moment was put there by God. God created that moment so that you could see that moment at a wedding and I could see that moment at a wedding. Now, why did God create that moment for us to see? It's because God wants us to see through that moment to the reality behind it that Jesus loves his church with all of his blemishes with that sort of delight and excitement and anticipation. God loves his church like that. With that sort of groom at the front of the church, there's the bride coming down. God, God loves his church with that sort of delight. You know, it's funny. If you read the New Testament and just pay attention to how the New Testament talks about the church, here is what you're going to find throughout the New Testament. You're going to see delight pop out of the New Testament. So you have Jesus in, in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 16, he's looking at Peter and he says, Peter, on this rock I'm going to build my church. I will build it, Peter. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you go to the book of Acts, you're going to see Paul risking his life to plant and establish churches. You're going to see Paul's deepest joys and deepest sorrows be associated with the church. I love it in the book of Philippians. He looks at the church at Philippi and he says, church, you're my joy and my crown. I mean, Paul loves the local church. And you see that consistently throughout the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, here is what you find. The New Testament 
oozes with delight in the bride of Christ. That's what you see just ooze out of the New Testament is delight in the bride of Christ. So it just makes me wonder when a person looks at Jesus and says, man, Jesus, I am all about you, but I just cannot tolerate your church. I can't tolerate your bride. I just, I just wonder what, what happens in Jesus' heart. The, the grief he must feel as he says, are you talking about the, the bride that I gave my life to purchase and I, I gave my life to, to beautify and to, and to purify and to perfect? Are you talking about the bride, my bride, that I cherish? That when I think of it, she, she warms my heart? That I delight in? Are, are you saying you can't tolerate that, that bride? I want to end by, by doing a couple of things. And let me just start out by, by just posing really the question I want to leave you with this morning and that I want you to think upon this morning. And here would be the question. How should Jesus' dying love for the church inform our feelings about the church? How, how should Jesus' dying love for the church inform our feelings about it. You know, one of, one of the most reliable marks of Christian maturity is that we, we love what Jesus loves. That's one of the most reliable ways you can get a sense of, am I growing up in Jesus? Is Jesus being conformed more and more in me? Am I loving what Jesus loves? And Ephesians 5 shows us many things, but one thing that we can take to the bank that it shows us is that Jesus really does love the church enough to die for it, enough to say, I will continue the work of perfecting and purifying it, enough where he can say, I delight in the church. He loves the church. It's part of what the church's bride is meant to show us. So that leaves us with the question of, do, do we love the bride? Do, do you love the bride? Enough to give your life away in a million acts of sacrificial love to see it flourish. Enough to labor to see the spots and wrinkles ironed out in the church. Do you love her in a way that you can actually delight in her and really feel deep down in your bones? This is the dearest place on earth. Do we love the local church like Jesus loves the church? Listen to J.I. Packer encourage this. He says it this way. The church that Christ loves and sustains is the key feature of God's plan for both time and eternity. And then listen to these next couple of phrases. And care for the church's welfare, which is what love for the church means. I'm going to read that again. And care for the church's welfare, which is what love for the church means is an aspect of Christ-likeness that Christians must ever seek to cultivate. He's saying that we, we as Christians ought to cultivate a love for what Jesus loves. Like if Jesus loves the church, let's cultivate that love for the church. And that love for the church plays itself out in a care for the church's welfare. And, and then he goes on. We are right to take the church on our hearts. We should be wrong not to. For our Lord Jesus says to us all, love me, then love my church. L love me, 
than love my church. So so I'm going to start with the same question that I asked at the beginning. When you think of the word church, what immediately rises up out of you? And by God's grace, can we all start to pray now that a deep love for the bride would be it? Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. If you can imagine yourself in a million years from now, what will be important to you? What will be, what will be priority to you? Just amazing how many things we get so preoccupied with here that won't matter then. But can I tell you the number one thing you're going to be preoccupied with in a million years from now, that the number one priority you would have in a million years from now is this question. Am I a part of the bride? Am I, am I part of God's people? His treasured possession. And the Bible is so clear about what it means to, to come into the bride, how we become a part of the bride. We come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. We turn from all of those things that we think gain us approval before God We turn from all those things that we know disapprove us before God. And we come with the empty hands of faith. And and as we come with the empty hands of faith, God looks at us and says, hey, can I make this trade with you? Would you be humble enough to give me your sin? Would you be humble enough to hold up your sin and just, just allow me to take your sin? And then would you be humble enough to receive the perfect record of Jesus' righteousness? This is what the Bible calls faith. God, here's my sin. I'm I'm hurling that upon Jesus. And God, I'm I'm believing in the perfect work of Jesus' form. Would you be humble enough to make that trade with God? When we are, the Bible says that then and only then, through faith in the finished work of Jesus, do we enter into the bride. And I just can't help but think some of us in this room need that. In a million years from now, it will be the thing that you would have wanted. And if that's you this morning, we're going to have some people at our prayer table this morning. Man, we would love to pray with you this morning. We'd love to begin that journey with you this morning. So please meet us over there. And for the rest of us today, are we loving what Jesus loves? Are we loving what Jesus loves? Father, would you help us? Would you help us? God, would you continue to bend our heart around the heart of Jesus? God, would you continue to conform us into the image of Jesus? God, would you continue to make this church a faithful representation 
a, a colony of resurrection in a world of death. God, would you do that in us? Oh, God, would you do that? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.